Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this week's Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. Do you watch a lot of those building and remodeling shows on television and think, hey, if I do a project, it's going to come out just like it does on TV? And then you try it. And in reality, there's a lot of bumps and bruises along the way that you never anticipated. Well, it happens in real life all the time. And that's why my guest today, Gabriella Milgram, has some advice that you need to hear before you build, remodel, or design anything. I'm George Siegel, and this is the Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. Your home is probably your biggest investment, and every week we show you warning signs and solutions to help you protect it. Tell Us How to Make It Better is partnering with The Readiness Lab, the home for podcasts, webinars, and training in the field of emergency and disaster services. Gabriella, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I love reading about what you do, and uh, there's a lot of questions I have for you, but the, but the first question I want to get started with is about the process that women go through in designing or remodeling their dream home. You say that that sets them up for disappointment and failure. Why yes. is that? I chalk it up to the overabundance of design gurus that are out there and influencers on all your social media feeds, as well as the rise in design TV shows. There's been a lot more viewers. I grew up watching the HDTV, so I'm not going to bash them, but there has been different shows that have come out through the years. And because it's snippets and it's kind of like snapshots of what's actually going on, there's not a full overview and a full picture in terms of what the whole process looks like. So we are led to believe through online social media, little snippets, magazines, and all of these design shows that we watch, that that's the actual process. You think of an idea, you go image sourcing, you start finding those inspiration images, you go hunting for those perfect pieces, and it all just magically kind of comes together in the end. And in reality, that is not the case at all. And if you proceed down that road, you're going to be set up for failure because you're not actually hitting what needs to happen in your project. Yeah, I totally get that. And and I think anybody that's ever built a house probably knows that they have to take certain liberties to get their show in in a certain time frame and and everything that <laughs> happens on there. But so much of that is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So how do you then get people focused in the, the world of reality? How do you get them to tackle a project and actually know what they're getting into? Well, there's two ways. I mean, a lot of people, and this is why I've actually split my company. So I have my company where I am a design studio and you can engage me as an interior designer in either a full remodel or a new build. And I will help you create your dream home and provide you with all of the documentation and the specs and everything that you need to guide it into light as well as help you with the construction so that you don't end up with a bad seat of a contractor. But on the flip side, not a lot of people like to go that route. Um, they either engage contractors that label themselves as design build or just contractors directly. And then they're left actually doing the design because it's what they want to do. And they think that it's going to be this easy process. But when they go about it in the wrong way, which means that they're just looking at the aesthetics, they're missing out on all of these valuable resources and questions that they need to be asking in order to actually create that dream home. So we're not talking about priorities. We're not talking about function. We're not really getting into the nitty gritty. And because you're not working with a professional, you don't really know what those questions are that you need to ask yourself. So then you're not really lining up what that design needs to do for you and your family and your home. And how much does resiliency uh, play into what you're doing? I know most builders, 
are not going to put in all the safety features that we might need. They're not necessarily concerned that that house is around in 20 years or if the hurricane comes or the flood. How much do you factor in? Not only are you building your dream house, you actually want your dream house to survive. Oh, very much so. And when you, and that goes into understanding the hiring process, irrespective of whom you're engaging, whether or not you are engaging a design build firm, and they are saying that they have the contractors, they have the architects, they have the designers in-house, they're going to bring it all to life for you, or they're piecemealing it together for you through people that they've worked with, or you're engaging your team entirely separately. You need to understand who you're bringing on to your team and what their experience level is to are they going to ask all those questions that you might not even know to ask to build that package and to build that home to those resilient standards. And then what are those standards for you? Passive house has become really predominant over the years. But again, you have to document that properly. You can't just say, oh, I want a house that achieves this level of energy savings. And then the contractor is just going to magically make it happen. Because if you don't have enough documentation in all those contracts and information that's given to them, you don't have a leg to stand on if they don't actually execute the house to those requirements because they could say they did it and you don't know that they don't. Now, I've talked to a lot of experts on this podcast. And one of the things that um, a, a leading architect uh, told me is he hates the term built to code because <laughs> code is just thinking of, okay, what's going to survive right now? But it's not yeah. forward thinking, you know, places that have sea level rise, there's climate mm -hmm. change, all the things that could be coming into play that just building to code might not build something that's going to be around that long. Yep. Building to code is looking at life safety and code predominantly is, I'd say five to seven or so years behind. And then they, you know, they do revamps every few years, but they're, they're changing based upon what's being influenced within the construction industry, but they're not as quick to step to it. And code is very much about life safety. It's about, you know, is your house going to fall down on you? No, we've made sure those parameters are in place. We've made sure that there's enough to be able to keep, you know, your house insulated and, and you're going to get out should something happen. We've covered all those egress points. We've made sure it's safe for you. It's not necessarily, and it's to the highest standard that you should be building to. There are so many other levels out there that you can build to, especially if you're building new. Um, doing a large remodel or, or a renovation on an old house is a little bit trickier when you start looking at upgrading all of your systems and everything in order to achieve these different life standards and energy ratings. But it can be achieved. It's just more costly. So it, it really, there are other options available for you. And again, that comes down to researching your team and saying, this is what I want. And then having them be able to say, okay, this is how we're going to deliver it. Now, how has having a construction industry background helped you in what you do? I, I think it would be a huge benefit for you knowing what that other side is really like. Oh, very much so. And I I always kind of felt like I was a little bit of the black sheep in the world. I mean, I exited design school and I was like, okay, but I have a very different way of looking at projects. I've always been more of an analytical designer, which is very different. Most designers are a little bit more head in the clouds, very ethereal, very creative. And it's not to say that I'm not creative, but I'm always more like, okay, but how is this actually going to work? And then when I got my first job in the commercial side, which was working for restaurants, I ended up in a design built where we worked on feasibility. And then we were also the project managers to execute the designs. And this was for a local restaurant um, 
brand in, in Canada and in BC. And that's where I suddenly everything just kind of clicked together. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not a black sheep. I just look at it more from this like execution project management side and then how that feeds the design. And all of a sudden, everything just started to come into play where when you look at them together, you're able to make more effective decisions rather than looking at them completely separately. And then how do you make modifications down the road? You've already like future forecasted. You've already thought of all those things. So it's it's been helpful. Yeah, it's important to have a cohesive team. So Mm -hmm. if you're working with a family that's building a house, you've really got to have the trust of the builder so you guys aren't butting heads. Because I've been in situations where the designers go left, the builder goes right, egos get bruised, people are sensitive. Um, how how do you navigate that uh, rocky road? See, I always approach everything with this idea that we are going to be on a level playing field. But I've also been in the industry for over 12 years on the commercial side where you have a lot more burly, more rough men that exist in that world that I've learned to just kind of pick up my bootstraps and stand my ground. I you know, like I've I've been patted on the head. I've been sworn to. I've been condescended. I've been told I'm bossy because I'm telling somebody to fix something that's clearly not done properly, all because I'm a female telling a trade or a contractor that's a man that it's not right. So I learned how to actually stand my ground and to be able to be assertive without being confrontational. So it doesn't bother me so much when we do butt heads because I've established enough systems and tactics in place and how I actually run and execute projects that I have all of that to lean on to say, no, these are all the reasons why we need to do it this way. And here's all the reasons why you're at fault and we're going to prove it. So I've established all of those systems. So if you haven't worked in construction itself and you're just coming from a design side, you might not have enough experience from a project management um, standpoint to be able to stand your ground when the contractor starts fighting back and to be able to know what you can push back on and how you do it effectively. Now, do you find that obviously since you do a lot of your your training is aimed towards educating women about this Mm -hmm. process, of, of building a house. Do you think the construction industry tends to take advantage of them and this is helping them understand <laughs> what they need to stand up for on projects? Oh, very much so. I, I will bring trades in for random work that needs to be done in my house and they will talk to my husband. They, they won't talk to me. They'll talk to my husband and my husband will go, I don't know why you're asking me a question. She's the one who knows what's going on. Like they automatically like silo you. They're like, ah, she doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know what's happening. And they can really speak to you in a very condescending and negative way. So I, because I've dealt with that and I've learned how to overcome it, I feel like it's a very important opportunity to be able to give women the resources and the tools to know how to effectively deal with these situations when they come up. They won't always come up and they won't always come up in such severe extremes, but to know how to prevent them from happening before they even get to that point by understanding how to hire the right people and what questions and boundaries and expectations you need to be putting forward at the beginning so that you are engaging the right team. Now, if I hire you to build my dream home, Mm -hmm. how important is it for me to forward think, okay, this may be my dream, but I may sell this house in 10 years. And nobody else might have the same dream. And now I'm stuck with something that was just in my head, but nobody Mm -hmm. likes. How much do you have to 
dumb it down or make it a dream that everybody could enjoy, or at least a broader sector of people that might buy your house? So it's a little bit of half and half. It really depends upon the longevity that you plan to be in a space. If you are looking at your home and you're remodeling, obviously that's a hard question to ask because you could be like, I'm going to be here forever. And then five years later, something happens and you have to sell your space. Totally understandable. But if you are buying a property and you're remodeling or renovating or building something new with the intent that it's going to be a flip or it's going to be a short-term thought process and then you're going to go on to something else, then you do need to be paying attention to stats. So you need to be looking at what is typically within the neighboring region in terms of bedrooms, bathrooms, square footage, et cetera. Not necessarily orientation and function of the space so that at least you're comparable. And then you can add your flavor, your different kind of spice and take on spaces in different areas, but always thinking about, okay, if everything else in the space, say, has EV charge stations for my home, and I'm very much against it, you at least rough it in at the time that you're doing it so that you know that the future person, it's a selling feature, for instance. If it's a house that you are going to be in for years and years, and you're like, this is where I'm staying, it's my dream home, I'm going to be here until I'm old and gray, then those factors are less important because in 20, 30 years, no matter really what you do, design aesthetics, design um, interests, the way that houses have been remodeled and renovated will have drastically changed that no matter what you do, it's going to be on the older side. So it's less of something to focus on. It seems like it, when you're looking at a house or if you're designing something and you think, okay, this is kind of a bad idea. It might actually be a bad idea. So for example, I was with some partners and we were trying to flip a house in, in San Antonio and we were we made over the house, but it yeah. didn't have a garage and we weren't allowed to put in a carport. Well, that ended up costing us a lot of money because the people that were going to pay the kind of money we wanted to make back on that house had nice cars and they wanted a garage and a carport. That's what they wrote in all their comments. So yeah. there's some things you really need to think about. And again, that comes down to when you're looking at properties, analyzing stats and really looking at it. Um, I had a conversation with the realtor a couple of weeks ago in terms of looking at like, well, how how does design and how do those questions come into play at the beginning process? And again, no one likes to hear this, but it comes down to research. So depending upon what it is that you're wanting to do in that home, before you jump the gun and you make any decisions, looking at what your options are. Go to the local municipalities and look at what building code restrictions are. Look at what your easements might be. Look at what your development permit process might be so that you can see, okay, if I want to do this to this house because it's in dire need of a full gut job, is it even attainable? So before you even get too far down the process and you've put in an offer and it's accepted, you've already looked at, okay, I can't do these things. These are my restrictions. Do I still want to go forward with it? We also learned when you start tearing open the walls of an older house, careful what you look for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Asbestos, mold, yeah, yeah. the whole lot. Plumbing really... things that aren't up to code. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand is that certain aspects in your house can be grandfathered depending upon the cost of your renovation. So if you're doing small little remodels and things, they won't make you necessarily completely redo all the electrical and plumbing in your home if it's not to current code standards. But if you do a really giant remodeling gut job and it's over a certain threshold of cost, they will make you touch everything, regardless if you are not in the space. 
So if you don't know that all of a sudden your costs, as long as, as well as like your entire project scope have just drastically blown up. You know, I started a segment on my podcast called what were they thinking? And <laughs> a lot of times I see these things just as I'm walking around my neighborhood, there's a house, a couple blocks from here, big mm -hmm. house, big yard, but it backs up to a gas station oh. and you can smell gas there all the time. And they're trying to sell it for top dollar. And I'm going, what were they thinking? Did they not know there was a gas station there? Did they think people wouldn't mind the smell of gas? I mean, it's one uh -huh. of those things that I scratch my head and go, what were they thinking? Well, especially to build it to that level of standard, expecting to get that level of income and return on it. You, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. And then a couple blocks from there, there's a, a mechanic and a tire store lot. And they're building a big house directly behind <laughs> it that looks into this. And in Tampa, Florida, they're building it completely out of wood. It's not any concrete block on this house. So there's a lot of what were they thinking there. Perfect sense. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. So what are some of the craziest things? Everyone wants a view you... of a tire shop from their like living room windows, right? Yeah. Well, just the smell <laughs> of chart. You know, when people are revving up cars to fix engines and all the, the little things, it's just mind boggling to me. What are some of the most crazy things you've seen or weird requests you've had from people that wanted you to design for them? Oh, I get a lot of, currently, I get a lot of people asking for very trendy aspects. And I always kind of look at it and scratch my head and go like, if you're really in love with it, 1000%, I will, you know, I'll put it into your space. But again, this comes down to this idea that it's like what you see, you think it is what you like, because it's all you see. So right now we're in a black and white trend. We're in a very like glam black and white predominance where you get a lot of brass, you get a lot of those gold accent features and then everything is very stark white. And then you have these big bull pops of black and they're like, oh, it looks so great. And then because that is all you see in terms of magazines, Pinterest on Instagram, it's like you gravitate it, gravitate towards it when not necessarily it is what you like. So I've been getting a lot of requests for that. And I always kind of question it. I, and I make them go a little bit deeper. I am very much someone who is pro- design and design style as it comes to how it affects your life and what it works for you. So if you are someone who was very glammy and very big and bold, go for it. But if you are someone who is more, you know, t-shirts in a bun, like hair up in a messy bun, not super over the top, then that design style isn't something that's going to sit with you for a very long time. And it's going to be very costly to replace it. So that that is one of the biggest things I've been seeing recently is just this like over predominance and and trendiness. Now lighter color exteriors of houses seem <laughs> to be the dominant thing here, but there's a house that was just built a few blocks away that my wife took a picture of today that mm -hmm. is completely painted black. Have you seen yeah. that? Oh yeah, black or dark gray, very very dark. Um, Why? Why do they do that? It's the black and white trend. Someone decided that black as a massive feature on everything or bringing black into accents like say you have a very brick faced very kind of historic looking house and then you're like oh I'm just gonna paint my garage door and like my window frames black it doesn't fit anything else but people see it and they're like that's what I'm gonna do um it's it's a trend it unfortunately it is what people see it's the same thing as modern farmhouse like what five seven years ago how many modern farmhouses do you have in Florida because we have a ton up here like everywhere. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of them. And I do not understand that because this is a tropical feeling place. Yep. This isn't, there's no <laughs> farmers in my neighborhood and I don't understand that, but the house completely black. I'm not just talking yeah. to drive a garage. The whole house is black. 
Yeah, all the trim and they'll do sometimes different sheens or just slightly different colors of it. And then they'll like glam it up with maybe some copper drain pipes and rainwater leaders. Yeah, it's, it is very much a trend. And again, in Florida, I would question it because unless you are putting in a lot of insulation and R value ratings into your home on in excess to what would be code standard, that exterior is just going to soak up the sun for the massive sun periods that you have and you're, you're going to overheat your house. So it's like what, how much of an overload are you putting on your systems in order to try to cool down your house now because your exterior is black and have you actually put in the correct systems to support it? Probably not. I may have to knock on the door and ask them what they were thinking. I I don't know if I can let that one go. And, and it's interesting to me when I lived in San Antonio, there would be Mm -hmm. house, most of the houses were stucco, but every now and then you'd see a red brick house and you're going, okay, that's a bit of a risk. Because aren't you automatically cutting down dramatically the amount of people that would buy that? Or are you creating scarcity and maybe everyone will want it? Yeah, it's, I mean, you've got building, I wouldn't call them standards, but um, building materials that are more typically used in specific regions because it is what is more abundant. So up here, I'm in Canada, I'm in BC, we have forests, we have wood abundance. So our the way that our houses are more predominantly built is more wood frame and it is more your wood siding or now it's kind of your composite material siding that looks like wood. That is more our aesthetic. And then you'll add in kind of layers of brick and stone to jazz it up. But in other areas, more in the South and in different parts of the US, you do, you have your brick because that is what is most like the building material that you can find more readily available. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just like you always have to think about what's in your market as well as what your costs are. Because if it's not a building material that is standard to your location, you are going to be paying more for it. And that goes throughout anything that you put in your home, in the interior or the exterior. If the species of the wood that you're putting in your floors is not native to your region, you are paying a whole lot more. So that those factors do come into play in your construction costs. Now, do you find that if you're the person building the house has some really creative or different things that they want to do and the builder doesn't really know how to do it, Mm -hmm. doesn't that hurt the efficiency of the the, the cost? And maybe he's he or she is going to be tackling something that 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 they've never done before. Very much so. I just actually read a recent case. It's based in Australia, but a recent case study where a contractor was engaged to execute a passive house but they didn't understand the insulation and the R rating values and all the building wrap that um, process that was required and actually to achieve these energy standards for a passive house. And they just built it to what it was that they knew, not really understanding what they were doing. And not only did it very much so not achieve passive house standards, but it didn't even achieve like normal energy rating standards because it just hadn't been sealed. It hadn't been executed properly. And That one's a really hard one because it comes down to the questions that you need to be asking your builders at the forefront, but also understanding what you're trying to build to and then aligning what your goals are to the team that you're engaging. And yes, you would pay more if you had actually engaged a contractor who knew exactly how to do that, but you would also be getting what you wanted. So that's where like the bidding process is a little skewed if you don't understand what their skill set is to their experience. Well, I think it's the real estate market here and in a lot of places in the United States is so competitive. 
that people are afraid sometimes to ask too many questions because they really just want what looks like the the eye candy of the finished product. But what I've learned, and I, I, I'm like a walking lesson for this kind of crap, is that you need to know more about the, the building, the people that are building your house and know the chain of command, know who you're working yes. with, who's going to deal with your problems, what their success is. A lot of builders will give you a list of people that are happy customers. Find out who the unhappy customers are. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones I want to talk to, but they don't show you those. I mean, there's really a lot we have to do because we get so taken advantage of by that industry, in my opinion. Oh, very much so. So if you are looking and you're hiring a contractor, there are a lot of questions you need to be asking up at the forefront. Um, some of the ones that I would definitely go through in the whole hiring and interviewing phase is, first off, are they licensed and insured? Because let's be honest, a lot of contractors aren't. I recently, I didn't know this at first, but I recently learned that in BC, in Canada, there are certain standards of where you sit in terms of where your contract level is, where you don't necessarily need to be licensed. So wow. you've got all of these contractors that are performing jobs that, you know, they're not licensed, they're not insured, which means they're not bondable. They don't have liability insurance. They're not licensed in the municipality to do the work. And that puts all the onus and the liability as well as the responsibility on your shelf. So I would never proceed with a contractor like that. There are ways of finding out in terms of online. It's like the Better Business Bureau and stuff. They will have classifications. Um, and when you ask the contractor, they should be willing to provide you that documentation up front. And if they're not, it's probably because they don't have it. Uh, second to your point would be have they worked in projects of similar size, scope, and budget. And then getting those, those recommendations. And again, just because a contractor hasn't done a project that's necessarily as big as yours doesn't mean that they can't, but it is most likely going to cost them more and it's going to take them longer to achieve it than someone who already is very skilled in exactly what it is that you're needing to achieve. So you're kind of playing with like what your level of comfort is if someone hasn't necessarily built a house to like your size yet and you're giving them that opportunity versus someone who's already built like 15 of them. Where is your comfort level lie? Um, and then looking at them and asking them for those referrals. But then there's all these websites out there. There's like Zilu. There's one specific to building where you can find referrals and comments and reviews on contractors. Go and find the ones that are bad and reach out to them and ask what was your experience, what actually happened. And sometimes it's a personality conflict. And just because they didn't necessarily get along doesn't mean that they're a bad contractor. It just means that they didn't get along. Um, other ones to look at would be what contract type are they using? And this is a big, huge, big, huge envelope to open up because a lot of people don't understand what their options are in terms of pricing models when it comes to negotiating with contractors. And that is a, that's a big one because they're going to sit there and they're going to say, oh, this is what we're cost is and this is how we're doing it. And if you don't know what your options are, you're just going to say, okay, cool, let's go ahead and we're going to move forward with this. And then to your point is who is on your team? Always ask for most big construction companies will have the person who owns the company that you might be the one who you're meeting with, a construction manager, a project manager, and a site supervisor. Meet with the actual people that are part of your team. Make sure that you get along with them. And then ask the question, what percentage are they dedicated to your project? Who is going to be boots on the ground? Who is your main point of contact? 
what, how does that communication get transferred? What part, like, how does that communication get documented? And what part do I play in it? What is your response time? All of these things play into how successful your project will be, but also how less stressful and tension inducing your project will be because you won't be butting heads with your contractor all the time. And I have another one. Maybe you have this, mm. maybe you don't. I would ask them who their subs are that yes. are doing the work. Who is the electrical? Who is the plumber? Who is the landscaper? Who is the pool builder? Mm -hmm. And then look at those people because my contention is a lot of builders will take the lowest bid for that project. Yeah. So you may get the crappiest pool in the world. You may get the worst electrical job or the worst plumbing mm -hmm. job just because that guy was a few dollars less than the other person they might've been using. So is it possible to vet that out and ask that, or are you going to turn them off from doing business with you? I know it's very standard in the commercial world. Um, and because I've worked in the commercial world predominantly, it's how I execute my contracts where I will require a list of subtrades. And I will require a list of who you're working with and their contact information. And then when we go through the actual bids and we're comparing them, we are looking at those ratings and those standards as well. And if we're ever uncomfortable with who that team might be, we can sit there and we can look at referrals and also those reviews online. And we can we can start talking to people and say, okay, well, why didn't you get along with this electrician? What happened? And what was your actual experience? And then going from there, and you can push back. Um, it might cost you more, but you can't sit there and say, okay, well, my preference is for you to use this plumber because I've heard great re like reviews from it and our past experience. They're going to go and say, well, that's not the quote we got. Okay, well, then go and get a quote from him and then tell me what the the differences and we'll we'll go from there but you can push back absolutely because there's not a worse feeling in the world than when your pool breaks and you hire somebody else to come out and look at it and they go that's the company you used i wouldn't let those guys fill a bathtub for me these guys yeah, are more <laughs> you can't get a hold of them to come and even take a look at it afterwards yeah that happens a lot so yeah <laughs> i don't know if this happens a lot in the u.s but what happens a lot here and i'm assuming it's the same for where you are is that people will engage contractors either as a design build or where they have everything in house or they are contracting out for like say architects and designers where they need it. And they are moving forward with a cost plus contract bidding process, which means they are getting some information from their team and they have enough to kind of bid on it, but not fully. So they don't have everything detailed out. They don't have all your materials selected. You haven't gone and selected it yet because you didn't know you needed to. So your materials aren't picked to the exact details of where everything is being located and those connection points. That's not figured out. Your plumbing fixtures, your lighting hasn't been sourced, where you want your light switches, your amount of outlets, your equipment, your appliances, all this stuff isn't fully detailed in the package. So the contractor's looking at it and the information that's given to them is enough for them to build it but it's not really enough for them to price it fully. So what they're doing is they're looking at rough averages and they're saying, okay, this is the house. We have enough to build. We don't fully know what they're putting into the space because they haven't specified anything yet, but we're going to look on medium level values. So we're looking at a bathroom. We know they're going to have tile floor and we're assuming they're going to have tile in the shower. And that's about it. We're going to price it based on that assumption. And we're going to price it at a medium level tile of say $1.75 a square foot. And then that's what they're holding in the price contract and the budget that they're giving you. But they're not telling you this. So then the project starts and you move forward with them. 
And then all of a sudden they're coming at you going, okay, what do you want here? What do you want there? What, what material you're choosing? How are we doing this bathroom? And they're rapid firing. You need to pick this. You need to pick that. What, what are your plumbing fixtures? What's your lighting? What's going on? And you're going, I thought that was all picked, but it wasn't. So then you go into this like panic mode of having to find and pick everything and you fall in love with stuff and you start giving them specs. You start saying, this is the sink I want. This is the faucet that I want. These are the tiles that I want. And not only do I want tile in the shower, but I want tile on all the walls. And this tile is now $4.50 a square foot. All of a sudden, not only have you increased the cost of the tile, you've increased the quantity along with everything else. So your costs just keep going up because you didn't do enough information at the beginning to give them everything. So they're not pricing it accurately. And you don't know that. You also want them to be transparent about how much they're going to mark that stuff up. Yeah. So if you're getting appliances, you might be able to go down to the appliance store and get the whole package for 5000 They might be charging you 15000 mm -hmm. So is it is it fair to ask what's your markup on this kind of stuff? Yeah. And a lot of the time you can actually negotiate that into contracts, which is what people don't understand, is you can say these aspects I'm going to source, I'm going to select, and I'm going to purchase myself but I'm going to have it part of your contract absorption that you are going to receive it. You're going to inspect it when it comes and you're going to install it, but you are the one who is purchasing it. You can do that for appliances. You can do that for plumbing. You can do it for lighting. Uh, for lighting, I only recommend it for accent lighting, like chandeliers and pendants and stuff. I don't recommend it for pot lights and all maybe your detailed recess lighting because you don't know all the bits and bobs that are needed. You'll probably end up short. So just do accent lighting if you're going to do that. But you can specify that into a contract. You can also say, I want you to take all of that on, or we're going to negotiate the percentage markup, and you negotiate that up front. Also, another area that I've never had a builder uh, do anything more than, than the minimum is landscaping. <laughs> and when yeah. we've moved into the house and you find out the $200 that they spent on their $1,000 landscaping package, and the fact they got the worst plants that aren't even indigenous to your area. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can really get screwed on landscaping. Well, that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that if you're working with a builder and you don't have a landscaping plan that sits there and says like, hey, here's where your irrigation is going and it's going to have these sprinkler heads here and these are all the plants that we're putting in it and this is the mulch and this is the specifications. You don't have a landscaping plan, which means they bucketed a certain amount of money of like bare minimum, which is probably just maybe grass and that's about it for your landscaping. So afterwards, when you're getting near the end of the project, you're like, oh, I want a tree here and I want a shrub here and I want irrigation and I want this. And they're going, okay, but we didn't bucket that and we didn't budget for it. And all of a sudden you either don't have the budget or is it even feasible at that time? Because typically irrigation and all those things and one impact your pressure and your water loads, but they need to be roughed in at the beginning process to tie into your house properly. So it's like, was that done? And if it wasn't, is it too late to even achieve it? You can walk around your neighborhood and see the people that can <laughs> do that. I mean, it's yeah. very obvious. And I always say it's a lot cheaper to pre-wire for things in your house when it's before the walls are closed, to put sleeves mm -hmm. under your driveway for lighting and for irrigation and all those things that you really need to think about that because it's so much more expensive to do it afterwards. Oh yeah, even if you are not planning on doing it for a few years and you think that maybe a few years down the road, you might wanna add some like accent lamp posts outside of your 
driveway or you might want to do a heated driveway. I mean, I live near snow. You don't. So heated driveways are things. <laughs> I have a naturally heated driveway. <laughs> naturally heated. Yes. I got a lot of snow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's something that we're considering, but I also live in a 1986 house. So it would definitely be a massive remodel. But if you're building new, you need to think of these things and maybe they're not stuff that you physically go all the way through at the very beginning, depending upon your budgets, but roughing them in, is a whole lot more easy upfront than it is to do it afterwards. They can very easily trench and run those plumbing lines, those electrical conduits, and then put a little stub up box for you that is flush to your landscaping. And it's right there where you might want it in a few years down the road. And then performing that work is so much easier. Absolutely. So I, I would, I don't think any builder is ever going to want to work with me again because I'm going to ask so many questions and I've had so many challenging <laughs> experiences uh, trying to do that. But I would encourage people, if they're not willing to work with you and answer your questions, mm -hmm. they're doing you a favor. Run, find somebody oh, yeah. else because the relationship never gets better. If you're not happy and you get married, you rarely ever get happier. You get more unhappy. The time to know analogy. if you're happy yeah. is before. What's that? That's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just mind boggling to me. So if we had to leave people with what you would think be the well, before we do that, mm -hmm. something I want to ask you about. Tell me about your three week course. It was in your information. Yes. So it is being pushed a little bit because I, I am pregnant. So I have to push it a little bit because Congratulations. I, I, I was like, this, this is not going to happen when I want it to. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be happening in the fall. Um, But it is a it's a free design challenge called House to Home. And in it, it is basically giving you the tools to create that dream vision more effectively than just being told create a vision board. So we're going to look at what those questions are, what that process actually looks like. What are your priorities? What are your goals? How does that feed not only your floor plan and your thought process from a design, but then how do you how do you impact that and bring that in? And then how do you layer all those requirements from a vision board and a floor plan and then find all of those things? so that it actually works in your space. So it's gonna be this step-by-step -step process. It's three weeks with me and I walk you through the exact right way to design any room with ease to know exactly what it is that you want and how you're gonna achieve it. Excellent. So if you had to leave people with one tip now, I want one nugget. I'm thinking of building, remodeling, designing something. What's the main thing I need to think about? So where's the start? What do I start with? The start would be looking at your priority list, what it is that you want to achieve, and then what that means for you, and then what that time frame actually looks like. So a lot of people have this idea that it's like, I want to design and I want to build something. I'm going to hire my team. It's going to get done in three months. That's not how it works. So if you have a crunch point where you're like, I want this done by Christmas of next year, what does that actually look like from your design process and your actual lead times to when you need to start work? And then that leads into what do you actually want done in your space and what your priorities are. So it's a bit of both in terms of what you want done versus when you want it done. And then what that actually means for being able to achieve your dreams. Very good. When, when are you having this baby? He is due September 8th. Congratulations. Is this your first and one? Yes. <laughs> Life will change dramatically for you. Keep hearing that. <laughs> yeah, that's what people say. I, I have five kids and it believe me, it changes dramatically. Oh, my goodness. I'm excited. But yes, there's a lot okay. to do in the next two and a bit months. <laughs> well, all your information will be in the show notes. And uh, wow, great information. Gabriella, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thank you for listening to today's Tell Us How to Make a Better podcast. If you enjoyed what you were listening to, 
please share the link with somebody. Subscribe to become a regular listener. You can also leave a review. And if you've had a building experience that you'd like to share, good or bad, there's a link to a contact form in the show notes. Let me know about it. And maybe you'll be a guest on an episode to talk about your problems so other people can avoid that happening to them. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.